We're really going to look at verse 5 for a bit, but I'll read the whole introduction starting at verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in you also. I want to start this morning by telling you the story of a young boy named Al. It's a shortened version of his middle name. His middle name was Alva, and Alva was about half deaf. One day, he was sent home with a note from school. He had, he had gone through several teachers and none of them had the patience to deal with his lack of attention and his propensity for being distracted. One former teacher had been overheard calling the boy addled and after a particularly difficult day he was sent home with a note that proclaimed him to be quote too stupid to learn. Naturally Al's mother was not very happy with the note. She sent a note of her own back to the teacher, politely explaining that he did not understand her son and she would take responsibility of teaching him herself. And so she did just that. She taught Al for several years, shaping his mind, catering to his curiosity, the things that he was inquisitive about. When she died, the boy Al, who was at that point a 24-year-old man known by his first name, Thomas, lived on productively for many more years. In 1931, three days after Thomas died, millions of Americans turned out the light in their homes and businesses for a full minute in honor of the man who had invented those light bulbs. Thomas Alva Edison, who was labeled too stupid to learn, had also invented the voting machine, the phonograph, the wireless telegraph, the alkaline battery, moving pictures with sound and hundreds of other devices and concepts, many of which we still use today. Ironically, that lights out. (laughs) I tell you that story just to ask the question, who had the greater influence, Thomas Edison or Thomas Edison's mother? Because if you had asked Thomas Edison, his answer to it was clear. Several times he was quoted as saying, my mother was the making of me. Now, being Mother's Day, it isn't a surprise, I think, that we might talk about motherhood, but I want to be clear, we are not worshiping motherhood this morning. We are here to worship our Heavenly Father, and even though we call it Mother's Day, it is still the Lord's Day, and that is our primary focus. It's for that reason that it's not real often I'm interested in trying to preach to the occasion on things like this, but since we just finished 1 John, it seemed like a good opportunity to 
discuss Mother's Day. The fifth commandment given in Exodus chapter 20 is honor your father and your mother. And so it would seem that we could focus on motherhood for a few moments as a means of honoring our heavenly father. We're not lifting up motherhood to some standard of perfection. Moms aren't perfect. I'm saying that right here, live streamed on Facebook. Moms aren't perfect. But they do find themselves in a perfect situation to exert a great deal of positive influence over the lives of others. They exert a kind of influence that I think is seldom, if ever, completely understood. Thomas Edison's mother, she didn't nurture her son's mind because she planned to bless the world with the great inventions that he would bring about. She just wanted to do the right thing by her child. And in the process, she exerted influence over his life and many other lives would be dramatically different if she hadn't. So I want to look at first the great influence of a mother, the kind of influence a mother can have on her children. Let me just start by admitting that's not always a good influence. I mean, let's just face the facts that not all mothers are good mothers. It's just an odd way to start out on Mother's Day, but it's important to understand that. When, we, when I try to think of the worst mothers in the Bible, I, my mind started reeling with the possibilities. I mean, you've got the, the mom who stood before wise King Solomon and was going to be happy to see a baby hacked in two. That was a bad mom. The prophet Hosea had a wife named Gomer who continually ran away from her family in order to sell herself as a sex slave. That's, that's a pretty bad mom. But when it comes to a bad influence, one of the ones that really stands out to me is a mother named Italia, and she might be the worst. She was the daughter of two bad parents, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And they exerted a decidedly ungodly influence over her. And when her son, Ahaziah, took the throne, this is how that influence continued. Second Chronicles 22 verse 3 says, He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. So he followed the example of his grandparents because his mother counseled him to do wickedly. Italia was a bad mother. She was the product of bad mothering and as a result came exact, became exactly the same thing. And she would lead the nation into such evils that when she was finally overthrown and killed, it says the people rejoiced over it. Now thankfully, not all mothers have a bad influence on their children. You can see in our text in verse 5, as Paul writes to his young friend Timothy, he says that he's rejoicing when he calls to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded in you also. This isn't the only time in Scripture that Timothy's mother is mentioned or alluded to. Back in 
Acts chapter 16, it describes that Paul came to Derby and Lystra. And it says, Behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman who was a Jewess. She was Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek. The idea of the passage there is that Timothy's mother was a devout Jewish believer, but Timothy's father is likely a heathen, a Gentile unbeliever. Now, glance over at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, we'll pick up at verse 14. Paul tells him, but continue thou in the things which you have learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So we sort of combine those together. We get this picture of life at, at Timothy's house. While his, uh, apparently his father was not a believer, Timothy's mother and grandmother were. And as good mothers do, you have a woman named Lois who taught her daughter Eunice about God and about the scriptures. No doubt she told her daughter about the coming Messiah and the promises of the Old Testament. And earlier in Timothy's life, both his mother and grandmother taught him the scriptures so that he understood those promises. And so when word of Jesus spread, Lois, the grandmother, was the first, Paul says, to hear the good news and recognize Jesus as the one who is the fulfillment of all of those promises. And then Eunice, Timothy's mother, also heard the message, whether she heard it from Paul or from her own mother or from some other source, we just don't know, but she heard and she believed. And so that makes Timothy like the third generation, isn't he? Look what Paul says to him there in verse 15. From a child, that means that, that word means infant, right? From a, from a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Folks, this is assurance for Timothy, but this is a great praise for his mother and his grandmother when you think about it. They clearly sat down and explained the Old Testament to Timothy so he could understand They had a great influence on him, not just by the teaching of the word, but also through the teaching influence of their lives. Look again what he says there in chapter 3, verse 14. Continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. Folks, that that verse speaks volumes. The, The simplest way to understand that is Paul is referring to himself and saying, look, You know me, you trust me, you know what I've taught you, so remember what I've taught you. And while that's at least partially true, it seems like Paul is is saying that Timothy has been, in verse 15, learning since he was an infant. Right? Paul wasn't there when Timothy was an infant. This has to be about his grandmother and his mother, who Paul is saying in verse 14, Continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing who you learned them from. The teaching here is to not stray from the truths which you've been taught. Other people might come with the intention of influencing your faith, teaching things contradictory to what you've learned. 
And so how do you know what's true? Paul says, remember the source. Timothy saw the effect of the word of God in the life of his mother and grandmother. They taught him by the word, clearly teaching him the scripture, but also by their own example. And that was a powerful influence years later as Paul writes to him and says, look, you've learned the truth from your mother and grandmother. I've assured you what they've taught you is true. So if you ever encounter some other so-called truth, remember the source of real truth. And that source, of course, is scripture, which Lois and Eunice had taught to him. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but in chapter three, that's how Paul actually leads into the, one of those verses that all of us know in verse 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. When you come to analyze the motives of people who are tell, saying that they're telling you the truth, You can't beat the motives of a mother or grandmother. They have this influence on Timothy that Paul, years later, has no problem calling on, drawing on that influence, encouraging him in it. That's why he could say in our text in chapter one, look, Timothy, I know your grandmother's faith. I know your mother's faith. He says it is genuine. That's what the word unfeigned means. It's not not fake. It's not a... It's not an obedience out of pretense. Lois and Eunice have genuine faith. And so Timothy, Paul says, I have no doubt that your faith is also genuine. Now, did Lois and Eunice teach Timothy the scriptures as a child because they hoped he would grow up to be pastor of a church and a great help to the apostle Paul? They could not have begun to imagine those things. That couldn't have been on their mind, but because of their influence on Timothy, they had a a greater impact on him and on the world as a whole than they could have ever imagined because a good mother, good parents, face the task of preparing their children to embrace the plan of God for their lives, not knowing what that plan is going to turn out to be. But if children are instilled with the love of the Lord and trust in the Lord and a knowledge of his scripture, they're going to wholeheartedly embrace the Lord's direction and guidance. But here's the problem. That influence doesn't necessarily stop where we think it stops, right? We saw in the negative example that I talked about where you had Jezebel, and she passed on a bad influence to her daughter, Atalia, and Atalia passed on a bad influence to King Ahaziah. We see that in the positive example where you've got Lois, who is a good example for Eunice, who is a good example for Timothy. But both of those are multi-generational influences. God actually addresses this in, in the Ten Commandments as well. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Go ahead and turn there. Exodus chapter 20. As the Lord warns about idol worship, so this isn't, a, this isn't a command that comes even before the command to honor your father and mother. You can see in Exodus 20 verse 5, as he, he says not to make and worship other gods, he says, 
I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the Father upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Some will take that and complain, oh, well, that means God's unfair. He would judge children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren for the sins of their ancestors. But that's really not the point there. The multi-generational influence of mothers and fathers is what's in view. Those third and fourth generations, God describes them in verse five. He says, look, those are are generations of people who hate me. And they've been influenced to dislike the Lord and disregard his commands. And that multi-generational cycle of influence for the negative has has taken hold and created generations that hate God. But the very next verse says it can turn around at any moment. In verse 6 of chapter 20, it says that God's still willing to show mercy unto thousands of them that love him and keep his commandments. While that multi-generational cycle is a reality, nobody is ultimately cursed by the sins of their fathers or mothers. There's mercy from the Lord for anyone who will repent of their sin and trust in him. And so when we turn to him, part of that turning to him is then teaching our children to love and to obey him because we've turned to him. So then in verse 12, you get the fifth command. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Apostle Paul later calls that the first commandment with promise. But what is the promise? When you look at Exodus 20, verse 12, what is the promise for obedience? Well, in Exodus, it isn't simply the promise that you're going to live longer. Although, listen, in reality, when a mother teaches you not to play in the street, you're going to have a tendency to live longer if you obey your mother. But the promise in verse 20 is that the children, to the children of Israel that your days may be long on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Right? They are moving to the promised land and to remain in that promised land under the blessing of God, they need to honor their fathers and mothers. That's the command as you see it from the bottom up. Right? That's the command to children in regard to what they should do with their mothers and fathers. They should honor them, they should obey them. You can also see that command from the perspective of top down, the older generation teaching the younger generation. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting at verse 18. Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall teach them to your children speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. See, there's two fairly simple commands. First, 
honor your father and your mother. You can remain in the promised land longer if you honor your father and your mother. The second command was teach your children to love the Lord and so that they both know and obey his commandments. That will keep you in the promised land longer if you teach your children to love and obey the Lord. Had the fathers and mothers of Israel obeyed those two simple commands, much of the tragic judgment of the Old Testament would have been avoided. But somewhere along the way, one generation stopped teaching and another generation stopped listening. Lord, help us that we we never stop teaching our children to love Jesus and to follow Jesus. Listen, you can be an influence for good or for bad. But either way, you are always going to be an influence on your children in the things that you teach them and in the things that they see you do. You might be like Lois or Eunice or, Lord forbid, you could be like Jezebel and Italia. But you're going to be something. And that influence has a greater and a much wider impact than you can imagine. So let's talk about the importance of being a godly influence. Because listen, I'm, I am certain that being a mother is, is difficult. I also know that as a man, I have no idea what I'm talking about, right? But in some superficial way, I think we can recognize motherhood is difficult. It requires a lot of knowledge to be a good mom. You're in charge of getting kids dressed and keeping house and planning trips and making dinner and stocking the necessities and ensuring health and keeping the peace. And when you start making a list of the job description, it's daunting. Moms have to know fashion and interior decorating, recreation, education, transportation, psychology, cuisine, literature, art, economics, pediatric medicine, entertainment, maintenance, purchasing, justice, religion, group management. And really, that's kind of making it out to be simple. But despite the difficulties, it is certainly something that is worth doing right. We've talked about how the influence of a mother spreads far beyond her immediate family, but I think it's safe to say that the the main focus of a a godly mother is a family-oriented focus. It is a family-first focus. I want you to hear, you can just listen, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read it I'm going to explain the context and then try to draw a principle out of that, okay? 1 Corinthians 7, 13 through 16, it says, And the woman which has a husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. And if the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the believing, unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the believing, I'm sorry, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart, A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, that text is specifically speaking about divorce. What do you do when with a marriage when you have one person who becomes a believer and the other person has still rejected the gospel? And Paul says, well, 
if the unbeliever is willing to live in, in the marriage, then you continue in the marriage. But if the unbeliever leaves, let them leave. Ultimately, stay married if you can. Don't think for a minute that, you know, believing the gospel is a get-out-of-marriage-free card. It doesn't work that way. But what I want us to see is in enduring the difficulties of that situation, Paul describes part of why you do it is because of the great influence, the great benefit it has for your family. In verse 14, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else your children were unclean, but now they are holy. The words for sanctified and holy there are actually uh, versions of the same word and simply means to be set apart or set aside for holy use. The idea is not that by virtue of one person being saved in the family that the whole family is saved. That's not what Paul is saying at all. But he is saying that God's blessings will undoubtedly fall on the whole family in a lot of ways. Look, if, <clears throat> if God is determined to do the best for his children and you are one of his children, then standing next to you throughout life is a pretty certain way of seeing some added benefits to your life. You know, if God's going to judge somebody and strike them with lightning, I don't want to be standing by that person. But if God's going to be pouring out his blessings on someone, let me get as close to them as possible. And so what Paul's saying here is, by virtue of being a child of God, being a part of that family, as God works in that individual's life, it is going to undoubtedly have effects on the lives of the rest of the family around them. As he providentially provides for one, many will see the benefit. But it's more than just some contract of mutual benefits. The ultimate gift is naturally more likely to come to pass because he says in verse 16, how can you know, O wife, whether you shall save your husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether you'll save thy wife, right? If you place yourself in the hands of the Lord, you cannot know what he might use you for in his own glory. God may use a husband to bring a wife to faith. God may use a wife to bring a husband to faith. In the context, Paul was even talking about children and God can use a, a mother to, to bring her children to faith as a, a tool for salvation. In fact, when you think about it, that is exactly the scenario that we just read about that happened with Timothy, right? His father was an unbeliever. His mother was a believer and her influence on him clearly was used by God to bring Timothy to faith. Understand, Paul's not making any promises here. He specifically says, how can you know, right? You don't know whether God's going to use you that way. And you don't know whether God's not going to use you that way. He may use you as a tool, though, to bring others to salvation. But it's possible a family member can continue in unbelief. We can't know that. But we can be an influence and we will be an influence for good or bad a christian wife or mother has a kind of influence on a family that is unparalleled by any other there is no more meaningful example for a child to be in 
constant contact, right, daily companionship with a mother as they watch her faithfully live out her love for Christ and her dedication to the gospel. Whatever influence someone outside of the family tries to have, it just can't have the same impact of seeing daily, continually a faithful servant of God in your home. That's why it's so important. Ultimately, the reward for being this positive influence is essentially twofold. It's it's appreciated by your family, but it's also smiled on by God himself. And in some ways, it doesn't seem fair, really, to think about all the work that a mother has to do and then to know the end result's not going to be great riches or world-renowned fame. The satisfaction of a good mother is satisfaction that her family takes in her and that God has in her. Proverbs 31, 28 through 30 says, Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but you excel them all. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. When you read Proverbs 31, it's about this virtuous woman. A lot of people, they'll approach it like she is a made-up superhero wife that doesn't exist. I can assure you that's not the case. She's real, and there is a reward for this work. It describes the reward in, in very simple terms. It's like this early morning thanks mom from the kids or a great job honey from the husband. In verse 29, it's a, you know, gee, you're the best. But the idea of favor is deceitful. Not everyone is going to like you. And if they say they do, they're lying. Beauty is vain. I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but look. <laughs> the Hollywood trophy wife, right? The, the dolled up 50s sitcom Donna Reed wife, that is not the goal. That's not the standard to be strived for. The woman who fears the Lord, it says, will be praised. The proper reverence and respect for God and his perfect son is the ultimate achievement of motherhood and nothing else can be a good substitute for showing that in your life and passing it on. The ultimate satisfaction of a good mother is to be satisfied in her work from the Lord and be willing to give herself in order to do the best for the ones that she loves. Listen, mothers are instrumental in shaping their children's minds and hearts. And it has this everlasting influence. Mothers can be a, a wonderful, God, good influence, God-honoring influence, or they can pass on this multi-generational disregard for God. In other words, any mother could be raising the next Timothy, a tool for God's glory, or they could be raising the next Ahaziah, the object of God's wrath. But good influence is not going to happen by accident. What good 
does it do the soul of your child if you teach them how to cook, but you don't teach them about Christ? Or how much everlasting benefit is gained if you pass on the ability to hit a softball, but not the duty to love their Savior? What eternal good will it do your child if they learn from you the importance of hard work, but they don't learn from you the importance of worship? Listen, influence isn't going to happen by accident. And it's either a good influence or it's a bad influence, and it is a continuing influence beyond what we imagine it would be. Take comfort, though, that your unfeigned faith is something that will live on beyond you. It can even impact eternity. Use your influence to do spiritual good for those God has entrusted to you. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) And may God use you for his glory.